When we come to Mark chapter 8, we come to the turning point in Mark's gospel. It's here that Jesus asked the disciples, so who do people say that I am? And in the course of that conversation, Peter steps up and says, well, you're the Christ. You're the, you're the living God. And, and from that point on, Jesus becomes more open with his disciples about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Now, that conversation took place here in the region of Caesarea Philippi. This city was built around a cave from which a natural stream flowed. And the cave was dedicated to the god Pan. And various religious shrines were built in this region that were also dedicated to the worship of the emperor. So when Jesus asked his disciples to consider who he is, he's not doing that in a neutral location. He's doing it in a place that was famous for its worship of idolatry and for the worship of the emperor. Thus, he is truly showing his disciples that competing religious belief systems will not hinder his ability to complete his mission. Well, again, good morning. Great to see you this morning. Hope you're ready for the snow. So you've just been introduced to Mark chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to join with me in turning there. Mark chapter 8. For those of you who are new, we're glad to welcome you to our journey through Mark's gospel, and we're kind of in the middle of the book right now. It's a great, it's a great day to visit because this really is the turning point in the gospel. So Mark chapter 8. By the way, as, um, as I mentioned, we are expecting snow this afternoon, and due to that, we had planned on having an informational meeting about our trip to Israel next year. We planned on having that this afternoon, but due to the weather forecast, we're postponing that one week, so that meeting will take place next Sunday, March 10th at 5 p.m. in the Core Cafe if you're interested in going to Israel with us next year. So having seen that video, I just now, I want you to, I want you to imagine the scene. Jesus has taken his disciples to this region known as Caesarea Philippi, far northern Israel. It's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. This is one artist's rendering of what it may have looked like, that city at this time. There would have been a, a, a temple to a foreign god right in front of that cave you saw in the video. And this, this was a very interesting place. It was very much unlike other parts of Israel because unlike most of Israel, it was predominantly Gentile, not Jewish. And unlike most of Israel, here in this region, you would find temples to foreign gods, even temples to worship the emperor. Herod Philip even renamed the city, so it was known as Caesarea Philippi. I find it interesting that it's in this location that Jesus chooses to have this conversation about, so, so who do you think I am? Right? It's not in the comfortable confines of one of those villages along the northern sea of Galilee where they could be standing by a synagogue. It's not in the city of Jerusalem where they could be standing on the magnificent steps leading up to the temple. It's in this region of Caesarea Philippi where they are surrounded by all kinds of competing ideas, competing value systems, competing approaches to ways in which you can make life work. And it's, it's almost like Jesus says, okay, in the midst of all of these options, in the midst of all the different ways and directions in which your life could go, who do you say that I am? Now, as Mark recounts the life of Jesus, this really is the turning point of the story. This is kind of the hinge point in Mark's gospel. 
And as we're going to see this morning and going through this part of the text, Mark really encourages us to wrestle with two very significant questions. Now, I realize over the course of your life, you're going to deal with many important questions, right? In different seasons of our lives, we wrestle with different questions. You know, what am I going to do after high school? What about career and job? What about relationships? Some of you have wrestled with, do I change careers? Do I move on? What what about kids? Some of you, you know, what about retirement? And in different seasons of life, we wrestle with different sorts of questions that are very weighty and important. In fact, the truth is, for some of you coming into this place this morning, there's some question on your heart and mind that is weighing very heavily. There's some issue, maybe in a relationship, in a job, or health concern, and you're trying to figure out what to do, how to respond, where to go. And and there's part of you that is just constantly saying, if only I could answer this question, if only I could answer this question. If that's where you're at, you're feeling that weight right now. Now, in no way do I want to minimize the kinds of questions that you've had to ask in your life or maybe the question that is heavy on your heart right now. But as we come to this passage, Mark is going to give us two important questions. And I want to challenge you to see that no question is more important in understanding and and, and perceiving the trajectory of your life than the two questions that we are going to be talking about this morning. And to show you why that's the case, let's now come to Mark chapter 8. We'll pick it up in the middle of the text. And as we pick it up, really, here's, here's the first question. The question is, who, who do you say that I am? So Mark 27 and following. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and we've just seen what that looks like. And on his way, on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And well, they replied, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But then Jesus says, well, yeah, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, well, you're the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, as the scene unfolds, notice that Jesus really begins. I mean, this is, this is a masterful move on his part. He begins with a non-threatening question. They're making their way towards Caesarea Philippi. Okay, guys, so what are you hearing? Who do, who do people perceive me to be? And what does that look like? What are, what are the rumors you've heard? What are the ideas? What's the buzz you get as you're out among the crowds of people that are around us? He's simply asking for feedback, and, and they answer. They've heard all sorts of things, and they begin talking about that. And it's, it's an easy conversation, but then, then Jesus makes it personal. So what about you? What's your answer to the question? Who do you say that I am? I think part of the reason Mark recounts this conversation for us is He wants me, he wants you to wrestle with the question as well. I mean, the reality is we could talk about all the different views that people have about Jesus. Some of you have gone through religion courses and your college experience. We've learned all kinds of views about what people think about Jesus. And we could have those conversations on and on and on. But Mark says, in the end, I still want you to answer this question, right? In a world filled with all sorts of different ideas about how to make life work, 
who do you see when you see Jesus? And he's not letting us off the hook. You, you need to answer this question. So what's your answer? Who do you say that he is? How do you answer that question? Well, after they've discussed all the viewpoints they've heard, Peter jumps in and says, well, you're the Messiah that is the anointed one. And, you know, here in the region of Caesarea Philippi, surrounded by all these other gods and temples, I mean, Peter nails it. And for one shining moment, he seems to be Jesus' star pupil. Yet right when this conversation seems to be going well, it goes off track, and we'll see that momentarily. Because you see, at this point, Jesus begins talking very frankly, very openly about the fact that he is going to the cross, that he will be executed, and Peter will have none of that talk. As it turns out, Peter identifies Jesus correctly. He simply doesn't understand what that identity means. Now, as we continue to work our way through the book, as we read through chapters 8 through 10, you will notice that there are three conversations that actually follow the same pattern, and this is the first of them. I've got a chart for you. This is kind of what it looks like. We, we see three conversations where Jesus makes very plain predictions about his death, where there is misunderstanding. The disciples don't get it. And then there's further teaching about what this means and what it means to be a follower of Christ. And the, the fact that these, these conversations are ongoing just shows how hard it is for this reality to sink in. So as we come back to this first of those three conversations, let's see how Peter gets off track, beginning again in verse 31. So Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I mean, Peter did such a wonderful job a moment ago of saying you're the Messiah, but now things go completely off track. Now, why is Peter struggling with what Jesus is saying here? Once again, remember the context. The, the context of Peter's situation is, is first century Israel. And people like Peter and many people that he would know had this expectation that there would be someone who was coming, a, a Messiah-type figure, but he would come as a king. He would come to rule. He would come to destroy Israel's enemies. Let me just read you a section written by a Jewish author from this time period, who says this, O Lord, raise up the king, the son of David, that he may reign over Israel. Give him strength that he may shatter unrighteous rulers, that he may purge Jerusalem from nations that trample over her. That was the expectation. That was what Peter was expecting. And now Jesus is talking about being executed. I mean, when you think about it up to this point, it, it, it really seemed that Jesus was living into Peter's expectations. After all, he had come and his message was this kingdom of God. And in presenting them this message, he was presenting himself as king. And his words weren't simply words of empty rhetoric. They were backed up with amazing events and activities. And, and Peter had already seen this. The way Jesus exercised power over nature, he could heal the sick. He could cast out demons. 
He could confront the religious elite, right? I mean, everything up to this point was feeling like Jesus was fitting into Peter's expectations. But now things are different. Because now Jesus says, the son of man must suffer. And just think about those words for a moment. Don't don't move over them too quickly. As you hear those words, understand that Jesus is doing something radical. You may, may not realize this, but he is doing something radical in that simple phrase. And the radical thing Jesus is doing is he's bringing together two themes from the Old Testament, two different themes. He's bringing them together and weaving them together in a way no one had done before. First of all, notice the phrase son of man, right? It's, it was kind of a unique way Jesus could refer to himself at different points. And to a Jew in the first century, when, when you heard that phrase son of man, it wouldn't be surprising if your mind went back to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has this vision of one like a son of man who comes with a power and authority and sovereignty over evil. But then... Jesus talks about suffering. The Son of Man must suffer. When you think about someone who came as one suffering, once again, to a Jew in the first century, you would easily hear echoes of Isaiah 53, which describes a man of suffering who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed speaks of someone suffering for the benefit of others. And what Jesus do, what what Peter had never heard done before is he takes these two themes from the Old Testament and now he weaves them together to say the Son of Man is the one who comes, but he comes as a suffering servant. And so here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm the one who comes in power. And of course, by this time, he's already displayed that. We've already seen ways in which he deals with people's problems, their hurts, their relationships, things that bind them. But now he is saying, but I will display my power in a surprising way. I'm not simply come to deal with certain problems on the surface. I have come now to sever the root of all brokenness in the world. And I'm gonna do that by going to the cross to break the power of evil, to provide forgiveness, to provide reconciliation with God. And through this, I am bringing about God's kingdom. Jesus is saying, I will display my power, but I will do it through sacrificial love. And I must do this. This is God's plan. This is how God will break the power of sin. In other words, Jesus is telling us this. (laughs) He is the expected Messiah but he is coming in an unexpected manner, right? He is the expected Messiah, but he's coming in an unexpected way. And this is why Peter and the disciples, they struggle. And in in multiple conversations, they struggle to understand this. So as we saw, Peter doesn't understand it. He rebukes him. And as as we look at Peter's response, I think it can be a warning sign to us. And here's the danger. The danger is this. We may want to define Jesus on our own terms, right? Now, I want to believe in Jesus, but I really want to, I want to define him on my own terms. I mean, that was what Peter was doing. He had a certain 
expectation about what Jesus was to be like. He projected that onto Jesus, and now things were going off track because Jesus was no longer fitting those expectations. Likewise, we can do the same thing. Maybe I view Jesus as a great moral teacher. You know, I appreciate his comments about loving others. Appreciate the way he gives me a sense of right and wrong. Appreciate the way he gives a moral compass. I, you know, I'm back in church, I want my kids to have a moral foundation. And all of that is good, but maybe that's all that I see of Jesus. Maybe, maybe I view Jesus as a divine butler. Right? I mean, when, when you have a need, you're supposed to pray. And you ask God to give you what you want. That's why Jesus came. Maybe I view Jesus as a, as a social activist. I appreciate the way he spoke truth to those in power. I appreciate his critique of hypocrisy. I, I appreciate and value the way he stood with people on the margins of society, on the, with the poor, with women, with those people that had been dispossessed. And it's an inspiration to me, and I want to live my life that way as well. There's value in that, but maybe that's all I see of Jesus, and I just project that view onto him. Maybe I view Jesus like a heavenly superhero. I don't know about you guys, but, you know, I know in our family we've loved the Marvel comics and loved different superhero movies, and everybody kind of has their favorite superhero, but maybe I kind of view Jesus as a divine superhero. You know, he always swoops in at the nick of time. You need to pray, and he'll come and rescue you and deliver you. When, whenever you get stuck, you find yourself in a hard place. But, but like other superheroes, otherwise he just basically leaves you alone. These are just several ways in which we can, we can kind of project these expectations onto Jesus. We can seek to define Jesus on our own terms and have him fit our image of what he's supposed to be like. But Jesus will have none of it. He's saying, that, that's not who I am. Here's my identity. I'm the one bringing about God's kingdom. I'm the one bringing about rescue, restoration, renewal, forgiveness. I'm the one who is offering you a new identity. But I'm doing that by way of the cross. I'm doing it through the path of sacrificial love. And this reality really leads to a second question. And the the second question is this, so what does this have to do with me? You'll notice in this text, and we see this in these other conversations as well, Jesus moves from defining himself to defining what this means for us. In essence, Jesus is saying, look, this is the journey I'm on. And if you are to be my follower, this will be your journey as well. So let's continue in verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This is, this is where this text starts to get weighty, isn't it? 
It starts to get somewhat sobering. I mean, look at verse 34 again. Right, he calls them to himself and he says, okay, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. So what exactly is he saying here? Let's take a moment to unpack this. First of all, I want you to see that the idea of denying yourself, of taking up your cross, these, these aren't ideas or themes that are ends in themselves. But they're actually part of the journey of following Jesus. So here's what I think Jesus is saying. Remember, he, he's been telling us that he has come to bring about God's kingdom. And he's now telling us that he's going to do that through the cross. And he's already told us at the beginning of the book that we become part of this movement. We become part of his family. We enter into relationship with him when we put our faith and trust in him, when we repent, when we turn from our old way of doing things and our old approach to life to putting our faith and trust in him. And now what Jesus is saying is, as that journey of following me continues, as this relationship continues with me, Denying yourself, taking up your cross will be part of that experience. And if it's not, at some point you will find yourself getting off track. See, these aren't ends in themselves. Rather, these are part of the steps that will be our experience as we follow Jesus. So what do these terms mean? Well, think first of all about that term denying self. You must deny yourself. So what does that mean? Well, let's start with what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, well, you're supposed to dis dis deprive yourself of certain things, right? You know, I could have bought a new car instead of bought a used car, therefore I denied myself. But notice the language. It's not deny things to yourself. It's, it's deny yourself. Furthermore, it, it's not an... It's not an attitude of self-degradation, of, of, you know, of self-criticism. Sometimes it feels like in Christian circles, it's like, you know, if you're really a good Christian, you're always putting yourself down, right? Somebody compliments you and you, you look down, well, it's not that, you know, we're not supposed to talk like that. And we're, we're quick to be self-critical. And well, that's what it means to deny yourself, just putting yourself down. And we learn ways to do that. We have phrases we used to do that. But I don't really think that's what this is either. In fact, the truth is, I can be very self-critical and yet still very self-absorbed because it's still all about me. So what is it then? It's denying my attempt to build my life, to define myself on my own terms. To deny self is to deny my self-centeredness. This will look different in each of our lives, but it's, it's whatever you do <laughs> to gain the whole world on your own terms, right? That's what Jesus is warning us against. And, and the reality is culturally we're, we're, culturally, we're given all sorts of messages about how you do this. Here's how you gain the world on your own terms. What you need is a good education, Right? So you feel the weight of that. For those of us who are parents, we feel the weight of we've got, to, we've got to set up our kids well because this is how you gain the world. This is how you prove yourself. This is how you create your identity and a sense of worth and purpose. You've got to get a good education. Or then, yeah, or you've got to get a good job. 
You've got to figure out how to manage your career. You've got, you need to own certain things and possess certain things that are a sign of your status and significance. And this is, this is how you gain the world. And you and I, we, we receive all, we grow up with all sorts of cultural messages that, that we easily absorb that says, this is, this is how you do it on your own. Now in an era of social media, we, we're even given the message, you know what? The more people who know you, the more people who value you, the more people who like you, the more significant you are, the more important you are. And you know, that can be a powerful message. I was reminded of this last weekend. Last weekend I spent uh, in Texas, I was visiting family. On Saturday morning I was with our son who was a student at Baylor University. As we were walking out of a restaurant, as we were walking out, there were several other Baylor students walking in. We passed them in the entryway. And it was clear my son recognized one of them. And that student was female. That leads a dad to ask questions. <laughs> right? We get to the car. I look at him. I said, did, did you know her? And here's what he said. He said, well, dad, actually, I don't know her personally. I just know who she is. I said, what do you mean? Well, dad, she's actually kind of a celebrity on YouTube. I said, really? Explain more. He said, well, she and her twin sister have a YouTube channel, Brooklyn and Bailey. Some of you have heard of it. He said, they have five and a half million subscribers. <laughs> and you know my first thought? I'm starting the car. What would it look like for five and a half million people to be paying attention to me? Right? And all of the sudden, my 145 followers on Twitter <laughs> felt very minuscule. Right? So if you want to follow me now, just pull out your smartphone and you can... Right? No, but I mean, it was, it was just this reminder of how powerful these cultural messages are. This is how you gain the world. This is how you make it work. This is what makes your life significant. This is what gives you a sense of purpose. And Jesus says, look, if you're going to follow me, that journey, as, as I'm working in your life, we're going to confront your self-centeredness. We're going to confront the ways in which you seek to make life work on your own. And as I said, for, for different ones of us, that will look differently. For the greedy, it's renouncing my appetite for wealth. For the proud, renouncing my desire for status and applause. For the complacent, renouncing my love of ease. For the faint-hearted, abandoning the craving for security. Jesus says, this is what that journey is going to look like. You're going to deny yourself. That's part of following me. And then he says, take up your cross. And once again, it's important to understand what this is not. This is not simply enduring the hardships and challenges of everyday life. I mean, we sometimes get, right, Christians, we say, well, we all have our crosses to bear. I get that, but that's not what this text is talking about. This statement is made in the context where Jesus is specifically anticipating his crucifixion. In the ancient world, the cross was a sign of two things. First, it was a sign of execution. Second, it was a sign of shame and humility. 
And Jesus, Jesus is preparing his followers that this may be part of your journey of following me. Don't be surprised by that. And of course, it is true that for some standing around him, they would experience execution and torture. And while that may not necessarily be our experience as followers of Christ, we can experience shame for being followers of Jesus, and he is preparing us for that. At times, maybe you have felt what that is like. You felt out of place because you are a Christ follower. Jesus is preparing us for this reality. <laughs> so at this point, Jesus' words get very sobering. I mean, up to this place in the story, it felt so easy to follow Jesus. I mean, for the disciples, you're around Jesus. You get to feel the buzz of the crowd, and you get to watch his amazement as he does all these wonderful things. In some sense, it had been so easy to be a follower of Jesus up to now, but now, now we get to the fine print. He's going to the cross, and if we are to follow, this is what our lives will look like as well. Interestingly, I think Jesus knew the weightiness of his words so he follows this description by explaining why we should do this. Notice again verses 35 and 36. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Now I think these statements actually work at two levels. And Jesus is wanting to say, here's why you need to take what I'm saying seriously. First of all, I think that they work on the level of eternal destiny. Jesus is saying, my, my road is going to make it possible for you to spend eternity connected with God, in relationship with God, rather than to spend eternity separated from him. But I think these statements work not simply on the level of eternal destiny, but also at the level of present reality. I think Jesus is saying this, in a world of brokenness and sin, in a world that we would all acknowledge in some sense is not as it should be, Jesus is saying, I am the one who will give you back your life. I am the one who will restore your soul. And there really is a paradox at work in these words. And the paradox is this. The harder we strive to make life work on our own terms, the more we lose our true selves in the process. The harder I strive to make it work on my terms, the more I lose my true self in, in the process. And that may sound hard to comprehend, but at the heart is just the reality that at the core of who I am is this need to be connected with God. And Christ's way is the only way for that transformation to take place at the deepest level of who I am. So Jesus is saying, why would you gain the whole world if you lose yourself along the way? Why would you gain the whole world if you lost yourself in the process? And talking about this author, C.S. Lewis gave us this quote. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. And the reality is some of you know what Lewis is talking about. 
Some of you know the weightiness of trying to live up to the expectations of others, of trying to make life work on your own. Some of you know the weightiness at times, the despair of not living up to your own expectations. And the truth is your attempt to gain the whole world is crushing you from the inside out. And Jesus says, why would you do that? Why would you seek why would you seek to gain the whole world, whatever that looks like for you, if you lose yourself along the way? So Jesus is saying, I'm on this journey and I'm inviting you to follow. And as you do, this journey will challenge your self-centeredness. It will confront you at times with shame and dishonor. Yet it will also be a journey of restoration. It will also be a journey of renewal. It will also be a journey defined by a new identity. It will also be a journey of forgiveness. Because I am the one who will restore you at the deepest level of who you are. Now, let me just tell you what this has looked like for me recently. As I said, I think all of us have, there are different ways in which we try to make life work on our own, Right? different ways in which we try to gain the world. There are different kind of negative attitudes or habits that we can fall into, slide into. And for me, kind of the way I can get off track easily is this. I can succumb to the idea that I can control life through competence. And by that I mean this. If I, you know, if I, just, if I just read enough, study enough about some particular issue, if I just gain the right skills and expertise, then 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 life will just kind of roll out my way. If I just learn enough about what it means to be a dad, then, you know, there'll be appropriate responses in the lives of our three sons. And so at times I, I kind of get off track because I'm wanting to control through competence. So here's where I've had to wrestle with that recently. Here's a recent story. As my parents have gotten older, as a family, we've acknowledged that at some point they're going to need to move out of our family home where they've been for 42 years. Now, as someone who really, you know, can control through competence, over the last couple of years, I've developed some ideas of what this would look like. I mean, in the back of my, my mind, I kind of had this working plan. And so, you know, at the right moment, we would just unwrap the plan and, and things would go just as I'd already planned. But then at the end of the year, my, my father got sick. He actually got sick while he was visiting us. He went back to Texas. He didn't get better. He ended up in the hospital. Several days after he was in the hospital, my sister called. My sister said, George, I think it's time for us to start that conversation. And I didn't say this over the phone, but my first thought was this. I think you're overreacting. And in retrospect, I was pushing back internally partly, <laughs> partly because this wasn't my plan. I mean, she said, George, I think it's time for us to talk about mom and dad moving, and I think they need to move closer to where I'm at. I, that, wasn't, I, that wasn't my plan. But I listened. And the more I listened, the more she made sense. And by the end of the conversation, I think I said, I think you're right. I think, I think you need to go ahead and start that conversation with mom and dad. 
And once again, I didn't say this, but in my mind, I was also thinking, good luck with that conversation. <laughs> By the way, they have given me permission to tell this story. I just want you to know. <laughs> Although they may not know how I was going to tell it, but... Because you see, here was the deal. Several, over the last couple of years, from time to time, I've had this conversation with mom and dad, and the reply's always been the same. No, we're going to stay in this home until one of us dies. That was their plan. Ended the conversation. But my sister started this conversation with mom and dad, and they were surprisingly open. Well, the following week, I made a quick trip to Dallas to kind of be with them, to help, and, and I continued the conversation. And I, I was just really surprised at how open my parents were. And then in one of the conversations, Jed, my father just explained this. He said, son, there's something I want you to know. He said, when that ambulance came to pick me up and take me to the hospital, he said, as we were pulling out of the driveway, as we were driving down our street, he said, I just, I felt a sense of release. And, and what he went on to describe was this. He, he said, I, there was just a freedom, a sense of release Our family didn't need that home to be a family. And I said, I, he said, there's, you know, just this new freedom of realizing that, that when we move, our family will continue and the, and the house doesn't make the family. Our family will, will be wherever we're located. And he said, I just, I've just got this freedom. And I fully understood that was the case when he told me this. He said, there's something I want you to do. He said, I want you to go to our home. He said, in our filing cabinet, you're going to find a file. And it's filled with all the people over the last several years who have written us wanting to buy the home. This is part of the reason I've been having that conversation the last couple of years because I'd seen some of these letters. And um, he said, in that file, you're going to find several cards from one family. They've been writing us for the last several years. And I just, he said, I really appreciated the cards and they want to be in our family because they know one of our neighbors and we love those neighbors. So he said, if we're going to think about selling the home, I want to start by seeing if they're interested. So he said, I want you to call them. So I went to his home. I got out the file and there were three cards. This family had written my parents once a year for the last three years. And all the letters, all the cards were the same. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Davis, we are, and they introduced themselves. And we just want you to know, if you're ever interested in selling your home, we would love to, to talk to you about that. We, we're very good friends with your neighbor across the street. And we'd, we would just, you know, we really want to be in this neighborhood. So just let us know if you're ever interested. So I pulled out one of the cards, got the number, made the call. Eventually we connected by phone, and we just had this great conversation. And ultimately, part of what we agreed to do was to meet, to show them the home. And, and that was part of the reason I was in Texas last weekend as well, so I could be part of this. So last weekend, at a certain time, they came over, and they got to meet my parents. And, and it was just this wonderful conversation. It turns out they're followers of Christ. They're from a great church in Waco, Texas. And we heard some of their story. Mom and dad told them about their kids. We heard about their kids and walked them through the house. And it was just, I mean, everybody was just enjoying one another. There's just a certain sense of joy and excitement. And, and at one point in the conversation, this woman looked at me and said, she said this, there's something I want you to know. She said, toward the beginning of the year, I just started praying to God this way. God, if you don't want us to have this house, just make it known, Right? 
She said, I was just praying, if, you know, God, I don't, we've been thinking about this house for three years and nothing's happened. And so I just kind of want to, I want to give this back to you. If, this, if we need to move on, I just want, want you to give us the freedom to move on. So I'm, I'm just giving it back to you. And she looked at me and she said this. She said, two days after I started praying that way, you called. <laughs> and the conversation ended and this seems to be the direction we're headed. And it was just, you know. And as they left, I just, I could, my parents, there was just a joy and excitement that maybe this, this, this home they've been in 42 years is going to have another run, another season with a family and little kids growing up. And, and you know, as I look back on that story, here's, here's the fascinating thing to me. Each of the players in this story, each of us in our own way was having to wrestle with the truth, deny yourself. This isn't going to work out exactly the way you planned. So don't try to always control life in a way that leaves me out. Each of us were, was wrestling with that. And yet in the end, each of us was also discovering a joy, a possibility that none of us had anticipated. In all the mental games that I played about what it would look like for my parents to move out, I never once anticipated seeing a deep sense of joy in their, in their lives that they could be excited about the next family to move in. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And along the way, I'm going to give you your life back. Along the way, I'm going to restore you from the inside out. And along the way, you'll discover you don't have to be crushed by trying to make it work on your own when you continue this journey of following me. So as I said at the beginning, Mark wants us to wrestle with two questions. He wants you to wrestle with these questions. So, so who do you say that he is? I mean, how, how do you answer that question right now? Forget the people around you. Forget, you know, all the theories that you know. How do you answer that question? And in light of that, what does that mean for you at this very moment? What does that have to do with you now? This week. At this moment. As you think about those questions, I'm going to ask you just to join me in prayer for a moment. As we go to prayer, as we think about those questions, first of all, let me just acknowledge that maybe you're here and the truth is you would say, you know, I've heard about Jesus, I've known all the answers, I went to Sunday school, I know all the answers. But I've never really answered that question for myself in a way that says, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one. And see, Mark is telling the story in such a way that he wants to bring you to that moment. And so maybe you would say this morning that I need to take that first step of following Jesus, which he's already defined in this book of Mark when he says, repent and believe the good news. 
Maybe you're here this morning and you've already started this journey of following Christ, but in some sense you've kind of gotten off track. And you've gotten off track because in different ways you've tried to make life work on your own. And, and even as we've been talking, you realize there's, there's a certain sense in which you've, you've really tried to gain the whole world by yourself. And maybe this morning you just need to be honest with God and say, Father, this is this area that I need to give back to you. This is an area where my self-centeredness must be confronted. Because I want to stay on the journey. I want to experience the restoration that only you can give. And I encourage you just to do that right now. So Father, as we see this amazing conversation between Jesus and his disciples, we, we really begin to see how important these questions are. I pray for that person who could be here this morning that has yet to start the journey. They know the language, they know the information, but they have yet to stand with Peter and say, you are the Messiah. I pray even in this moment they would be willing to acknowledge their need and, and just come to you and say, Father, I now receive the gift of Jesus Christ. I also pray for some of us that are here, but we've gotten off track, and they're, they're just areas in our lives that, that we need to move past because we've gotten stuck in self-centeredness. Father, I pray your spirit would just challenge us and, and, and invite us to move forward. And I pray we'd be willing to invite your ongoing work so that we can truly be people who follow in an ongoing way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.